Hi, and welcome to WexCast, the podcast series that delves into the multidisciplinary work of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. Over the past decade, sports have assumed an even larger place in our culture, advancing further into the fields of art, film, and media, as artist and curator Astria Superak noted during a visit to the Wex last month. For example, she cited things such as ESPN's 30 for 30 series and sports-specific gallery exhibitions like the Wex's 2010 show, Hard Targets. Astria's visit was part of a series of programs in March in which Wex curators focused on the intersection of sports, art, and culture. She was joined by Brett Cashmere, her co-editor for the latest sports-centered issue of Insight, an annual artist-run print publication dedicated to experimental media. They discussed the issue and shared a program of experimental films, and the WEX also presented a new program of rare baseball films, as well as the premiere of Columbus filmmaker Chris Bournet's documentary, Lady Wrestler, The Amazing Untold Story of African American Women in the Ring. For this edition of WEXcast, we're sharing another part of the program, the spirited panel discussion expanding the field, sports, and culture. Moderated by our own director of film video, Dave Philippi, the talk included input from Ohio State Department of Human Sciences Professor Samuel Hodge and two distinguished, nationally recognized Columbus artists. Carmen Winant, an installation artist and author of the new book, My Birth, and Hanif Abdurraqib, author of the critically acclaimed essay collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Each have athletic backgrounds and respectively, they touch on the role sports play on society and in their individual practices. Carmen's work was recently featured at the Wexner Center as part of the summer 2017 exhibition, Gray Matters. And Hanif's book can be found at the Wexner Center store, along with the new issue of Insight. Let's hear from the group. Um, well, it's my pleasure to introduce our, we, we've been resisting calling it a panel because we really want it to be informal and at the end we'll definitely um, save some time if people have questions. And I think this is a really exciting panel. Um, three people who basically we all, um, well, these three just met today, um, but they're interested in sports and they come at it from completely different places. Um, and in, in talking, I, I think it, well, I'm hoping it'll be a really um, interesting and engaging conversation for everyone. Um, let me introduce everyone, um, starting um, with um, far left, and I guess it'd be your right, audience right. Um, Carmen Wynant is a Columbus-based artist, critic, and teacher at CCAD. Um, I should also note that she was an accomplished track and cross-country athlete at UCLA. And I think you said you still hold a record, um, but I forgot to look it up. I do, I'm number 10 of, they, 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 they chronicle the top 10 in every event, so I'm literally hanging on by a thread. I'm, I'm number 10 in the 10,000 meter of all time at UCLA. Nice. I'm sure I'll be knocked off in <laughs> days, months, or years. Um, as a critic, her work has appeared in Art Forum, Aperture, The Believer, among others. Her artwork has also been included in shows around the world, in including um, the incredible installation she did. Um, the answer is Matriarchy, which was included in last year's Grey Matters exhibition here at the WEX. Its curator, Michael Goodson, is in the audience. Um, her current piece, uh, um, Another Echo is in uh, New York's Sculpture Center, and her current installation, My Birth, is at MoMA in New York, which inspired a incredible profile in Vogue magazine, which just came out online on Tuesday. And her book, My Birth, will be out like in two weeks? Oh, it's out now, okay, so um, very exciting. Um, next to Carmen is Samuel Hodge. Samuel is professor in the Department of Human Sciences in the College of Education and Human Ecology. His research focuses upon teacher preparation and inclusion and issues of social justice and cultural diversity. In 2016, he was named fellow of the National Association for Kinesiology and Higher Education. And we really felt like we should have someone who's literally um, a PhD expert on sports on the stage with us, um, someone who has a piece of paper to back it up. Um, and um, just from conversation, I know Samuel is um, in the privileged position of um, uh, um, working with a lot of the college athletes on campus here, so um, his expertise is really going to be relevant to our conversation today. 
and to Samuel's right, Hanif um, Abdurraqib is an, a Columbus-based poet and critic. His work has been featured in the New York Times, MTV, Spin, Pitchfork, among other outlets. His collection of poetry, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, came out in 2016. And to say his 2017 collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, a collection of his essays and criticism um, put out by Columbus publisher $2 Radio, uh, met with acclaim is a great understatement. It's landed on numerous uh, year-end top 10 lists, including Stereo Gum, NPR, Paste, The Los Angeles Review, and more. Um, and just personal note, if you like sports and music and great writing, um, do yourself a favor and pick up a copy in the Wexner Center um, bookstore after. It's really one of the best books I've read in a really long time. So um, makes you proud to be from Columbus. <laughs> um, and uh, given the topic, I should note that Hanif played soccer at Capital University as well. Um, so welcome, everyone. Um, I thought, you know, we'll get into some of the, um, in talking with everyone, I think we could have like a 10-hour conversation about sports, and obviously we, we can't do that. Um, so we'll try to um, hone it down. But, um, and we'll talk about some of the issues um, that I think we're all interested in. But before we do that, maybe um, we could talk about what we, like about sports, and um, each of you um, kind of officially deals with sports, but then otherwise, or in other ways, maybe sports kind of moves through your work and your profession in more indirect ways. If you could maybe talk about kind of what draws you to sports, what appeals to you about sports, and maybe how it um, informs your work. Sure. Um, yeah, that's, that is a question I could talk about for a long time. I think I was initially attracted to running and specifically long distance running, which was sort of my drug of choice um, because I, in my case, I really struggled in school and um, I, I think I feared really acutely that I didn't have the kind of intelligence that I would need in life to, you know, to drive forward. And um, when I discovered running and I discovered that I was good at it, um, it, the world sort of shifted beneath my feet because I came to understand that there was more than one form of intelligence and that bodily intelligence was a kind, um, had its own kind of vitality and its own kind of significance. Um, and over time, as I sort of became an artist and um, an intellectual in my own way, um, I, I realized that that sort of form of bod bodily intelligence or what I came to think about as um, embodiment could in fact be a subject of intellectual pursuit and a subject of creative pursuit. But I really had to learn first that, um, that, that my body could, um, could be, it sounds sort of trite to say, but my body could be powerful, my body could be thoughtful, my body could be curious, and that could all sort of course through me as a part of and separate to my mind or my intellectual capacities. And maybe I'll just add on to that that um, the idea of uh, discipline, the ideas of discipline and failure have really um, come to be sort of central to my thinking and my work, um, as well as I should say maybe an idea of repetition. And all of those things I learned through running. I was never a person who enjoyed uh, competition. I still, I'm not. That's not like, there's no part of me that's excited by that or turned on by competition. I was really interested in the grind. Um, and for me, that was all about sort of running mile after mile after mile and sort of attending practice, two a day, three a day practice. Um, that I sort of beca I became interested, again, sort of in terms of my body and my performance, but also in terms of my work. Um, in, uh, in, in sort of how pleasure can be found um, through a certain degree of, of pain and, and, and resistance. Samuel? Um, I think for me, it's the dynamic aspect of sport is what I like best, um, and how it affords uh, you the opportunity to, to be expressive while also seeking excellence. That's good. Um, I've been thinking a ton about um, moments in team sport where the team shrinks to a one-on-one -on -one situation. So, for example, um, there's an essay in my book about the night where Allen Iverson crossed Michael Jordan over, right? More specifically, there was a part in the NBA All-Star game this year where Kyrie Irving um, attempted a dribble move that he could never do in an actual game. 
And I've been thinking about that a lot. About I think what I like about sports is the, the drama inside of the drama, right? Or I, I don't know if I'm that interested in who wins and loses games. And I have my favorite teams, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not, uh, with the exception of maybe the crew, I'm still a bit in agony over any time they lose. But largely, you know, I'm a Minnesota Timberwolves fan. If they lose, I don't feel agony like I used to. I am largely invested in sports for the narratives, right? And so I've been thinking a lot about Kyrie Irving specifically and how he is capable of manipulating one-on-one -on -one situations like no one else has in a while, right? He's very good at not only drawing defenders to him, but then tricking them into doing what he wants them to do before he finds a brief bit of freedom. I think that is kind of what I've started to love about sports is the shrinking of the team game into a one-on-one -on -one game um, because I think that is what writing is to me, right? Mm -hmm. Writing is kind of me trying to draw whatever muse I've chosen close and then trying to manipulate it into doing what I want it to do. Terrific. Um, and we're obviously on the campus of Ohio State. Um, I think it's the second largest athletic department. Samuel, do you know? I think after Texas, we're the second largest. Yes. And um, one thing that fascinates me about sports is the um, intersection of pure business and, you know, athletic achievement. And, um, it, it, you know, nowhere is that much more of a troubling um, nexus than college sports. And um, we have two um, former college athletes on the stage. And um, I guess you know, neither of you obviously were in the, the big money side of it, but still, you know, experienced, um, the, had the experience of being a college athlete. Maybe if you could, um, or starting with Samuel, um, maybe if you could reflect a little bit on some of the, um, the, the pros and cons of, of college athletics, especially in an environment like Ohio State where, you know, there's obviously benefits to being a college athlete, but there's a lot asked of them and sometimes without their permission asked of them, um, really, um, if you could talk about that dynamic a little bit. Certainly. Uh, certainly that is a really large pie to slice into. Um, so I, so context for me is important. Uh, I spend most of my days standing before young people who look like you and having conversations around sport. Uh, I teach a number of coaching courses, sport coach, um, sport related courses, and we engage in aspects of college athletics as a, as a piece of that, and we try to put together the, the, the context of why it is we are where we are, um, and so why our teams look the way they do. Speaking of demographics-wise, uh, it's not just by accident. Why is it in most of our predominantly white universities, and by the way, uh, I, I may I'm comfortable using terms that some people are not so comfortable with. So I may use some terms that uh, you may not find very comfortable. Um, why is it that our teams look the way they do and the legacy that brings us to where we are? There's no accident that most teams at predominantly white institutions, let's say swimming for an example, are predominantly white teams. Or basketball teams are predominantly black teams, oftentimes. Well, it was not always that case. And so what, what we attempt to do over the course of a semester, obviously that's not a possibility here, is to, is to make that journey from the, the pre-days of integration through integration to where we are today, to help young people understand that we are where we are because of a reason. Now, we, and then, so then you add in the dynamics of society and how it changes to increasing amounts of money and shifting from, we do sports because it's entertaining, uh, to have excellence as we mentioned before, to now it's a money-making operation. And it, there's no question that most of our big-time sport uh, programs now are money-making operations, uh, far beyond just educating young people and giving them opportunities to participate on courts and swimming pools and um, fields is, is, is about generating funds. And so I think in today's world, it's hard to separate 
uh, the business side of sport and athletic side of sport because they, they clash so much. And then you have the arguments of, well, who's getting paid and who's not? Uh, if, if Ohio State University, for an example, we have four uh, home games in football, as an example, typically four home games, which and they generate each generates nearly four million dollars each home game at Ohio State University. Well, so when you say, well, someone's re is reaping the benefits of all that money, and it, the argument goes that, well, the athletes are not those who are reaping the benefits of all that money. So you get into whether or not athletes should be paid and all those kinds of conversations. So there's a lot uh, that could be talked about uh, in regard to collegiate athletics and where we are. And I just think it's important to come back to this notion of context and how did, it, how did we get to where we are today? I brought that up as, as an entry point into a discussion, um, hopefully I'm getting more into some of, you know, like the, the well-known protests that have been going on. But in our conversation the other day, we started to talk a little bit about how um, college athletes, even though they might have something to say about, you know, for instance, the take a knee movement, maybe don't feel empowered to do it, just given the situation that, that they're in compared to maybe at the far other end of the extreme, a well-known basketball player like LeBron James. And maybe we can all discuss that a little bit, what we've been taking from some of the um, the protests. But more generally, um, um, feelings about just athletes as centers of, of social protest or speaking out on, on different issues. Um, or, go ahead, honey, if it looks like you. OK. <laughs> um, so I was at, at my most um, my most formative years, I think I was at a point where, so okay, I think that I live a life bookended by this idea that athletes were very much involved in protest um, in my father's era of sport, now in my adult era of sport. But in the middle, it was less so because the most dominant athlete was Michael Jordan and was, he was just very, like a blank slate on that thing. And not only that, Michael Jordan opened up a whole concept of what marketing the modern athlete can look like. And in the 90s, I think it looked like being somewhat docile or being a blank slate and having being a blank canvas and, and allowing yourself to be painted any way you wanted to. Um, and so I think sometimes the reaction to athletes protesting and speaking out now, or at least, at least how I see it is athletes kind of understanding their own power, right? Or, or reclaiming their own power. LeBron James can tweet whatever he wants to Donald Trump because what's the NBA going to do? Say, don't show up to work, <laughs> you know, to LeBron James? Of course not, you know? Um, I think there's an era of people who are reacting to this because they forgot that this is the work of the modern athlete too, right? They forgot about you know, protests at the Olympics in the 60s, and they forgot about Bill Russell, and they forgot about Jim Brown, because they were like, cool, maybe this is all over with Michael Jordan, you know? Um, and to be frank, you, you know, I was happy for LeBron, I, I remain happy for the NBA players who seem to speak out most freely, because it seems like they have the freedom to do so, where the NFL players do not. Um, it, is very, it does very mention that Colin Kaepernick's not Michael Jordan, but that the, Colin Kaepernick should still have a, a gig somewhere, you know what I mean, at the rate. Um, but I'm most heartened by this idea that a type of protest is the act of valuing humanity more than the game itself. And I'm really heartened by that kind of coming back to the forefront. Uh, okay. I I think there's a lot to unpack in, in that statement, um, and I agree with those comments. I think when you uh, talk about Michael Jordan as uh, arguably the you know the best basketball player of all time, others would say other folk, but um, he he put forth, in my opinion, a strong effort to be as apolitical as possible, um, and I suspect the reasoning had a lot to do with. Um, making as much money as possible and not offending one side or the other. So in a lot of ways, Michael Jordan for me is irrelevant to a conversation about uh, protests and, and standing. Whereas today's athlete at the professional level, 
if you are a LeBron James, for an example, uh, you can pretty much say what it is you would like to say about whoever it is you would like to say it about. Uh, whereas if you're a marginal player, that's far less the case, uh, even as a professional. If you are a collegiate athlete, then that's a whole different conversation because you don't have that standing or that power. Um, and so for the collegiate athlete, it must be done as a, a complete unit or not at all. Uh, if you do it as a complete unit, then, then certainly you can, you can make statements. But we, but we do know that coaches tend to try to quash uh, those kinds of things uh, with student athletes. And so one of the conversations we have in my class is the protests that happen here at Ohio State University that I would say 90% of our students are unaware of in the late 1960s and 70s when the campus was literally shut down for 20 days because of protests and the National Guard was brought in on campus, on High Street, and several people were shot and injured and some were killed. Well, we know about Kent State, but we don't talk a lot about Ohio State, the very university that most of us are at. And those things happened. There was disagreement between the black student athlete, the black students in general, and the, and the black student athletes on the Woody Hayes because the black students felt as if the black student athletes were not speaking out. And Woody Hayes was doing things to make sure and certain that that did not happen. So there, again, there's a lot, and it depends on if I'm a superstar, professional athlete, um, I have greater ability to say things than if I am a collegiate athlete or if I'm a marginal athlete. Okay. I might just add really briefly, um, I, you know, I concur with what's been said already on stage. I might just add that my experience at UCLA probably won't surprise anyone here um, that to hear that as an athlete, even as a cross country and track and field athlete, my education was not privileged, let's say. I, I took it upon myself to, you know, aggressively go out and um, find the classes and sort of the educators that I wanted to work with, but things would have been sort of smoother and easier had I um, sort of skimmed the surface, so to speak. Um, and I knew many athletes who did that because they had to do it, because they were traveling every week or because they had to hit certain GPAs so they would have other people take their tests, you know, as sort of like rubber stamped by their advisors and, and, and so forth. So I just want to sort of make the point that education is political and, um, and that when student athletes are not being, are not sort of being educated the way that, um, you know, the way that they have otherwise been assured that they will be by entering these institutional forces, um, that in fact that is a kind of that's a political gesture, and if they can organize in and around that um, when they themselves are the vulnerable persons and the people who don't have power, then that's a really impressive force, as with, you know, as with Northwestern a couple of years ago. Um, and, of course, we don't see it very often <laughs> because, uh, because they're not empowered, but they are being put in a, a political situation, albeit sort of a nuanced and invisible one. Um, and maybe I can just come back to Carmen. Um, if we could talk about the special role that um, athletes have in our society where, you know, people from different races, different classes, different parts of the country all might kind of look up or revere or admire this athlete, whether it's LeBron James or Tom Brady, um, but then how the dynamic can start to shift a little bit once that athlete starts to... Um, you know, become a political person, like, you know, the most extreme example, obviously, is Colin Kaepernick. Um, but how in, maybe we could, however you want to react that, to this, how on one hand, sports does have this kind of ability to bring people together across from different points of view, but at the same time, when something happens, all of a sudden, those divisions become very apparent and, and very visible. Yeah, I have maybe an unusual answer to this, which is... Um, I'm, I'm Jewish and I grew up in Philadelphia and I moved to UCLA across the country to, um, to play sports. And I mentioned the first part because um, I got to those teams and discovered that the majority of my teammates were, um, were born again Christian um, and or sort of of, of the Christian faith and in a way that uh, was really pervasive on the team. 
nothing, nothing against Christian folks, right? But um, we prayed before every race. We oftentimes prayed during practices. Um, there was there was a lot of um, there was a lot of talk about a, you know a kind of faith and a kind of God that I didn't know or subscribe to, um, and along with that came a certain kind of politics. So I actually came into an understanding of uh, sort of the relevancy of activism and political left-wingism, um, you know, in some cases radicalism, to sports after I graduated college. I, it sounds sort of ridiculous to say, but um, as the only Jew praying in a, a Christian prayer circle <laughs> by default for four years, um, I, it took me a long time to understand that uh, sort of sports is sort of deep-rooted history, actually, um, with, you know, civil rights protest and on. Um, so that was, a, that was a revelation to me. Um, I think I've lost the thread of the question now. How athletes have this kind of special role in our society where we kind of project on them. They can, right, you know, right. they can bring people together, but also divide people. Right, right. <laughs> um, right, so um, I, I, maybe I can sort of throw this to you guys, but I wonder if... Um, yeah, maybe I could leave it there and say that um, it was revelatory to me to, you know, come into some of the figures that you've mentioned, because I did grow up with Michael Jordan saying that, um, you know, Republicans buy shoes too, and I, and I did grow up with, you know, sort of come through athletics with, um, with prayer circles and prayer groups, and most, mostly people sort of who had grown up in maybe a more right-wing Orange County community. Um, so... It was shocking to me. I mean, it sounds sort of silly to say, um, and, and it really kind of opened up. It opened up a new understanding. So maybe we could. Yeah, I mean, I so I think that my response to that is similar, but also a little different. I was in all in my entire sports career, when I was not playing basketball, I was almost always othered. Right. I'm from the east side of Columbus, a largely black neighborhood. The select soccer teams I played on, I was always the only black person or one of two. Um, when I got to college, I was the first ever American-born player of color that ever existed at Capitol on the soccer team. Um, and that created just an automatic distance, right? When you come into a place and you're already the first other, that creates just that you're walking into a distance that's going to be impossible to close almost. Um, also was raised Muslim, and during my years of soccer, I would have to fast. I would be doing Ramadan during the season which was just puzzling to everyone, right? Or became like a joke to everyone. And so I, I often thought of my mere presence on these teams or my ability to perform well through this idea of being othered was a type of resistance or was a type of activism. It was acting in reaction to this preconceived notion about what I was or wasn't capable of. Um, and so I understand that as a type of activism too. And I know this isn't speaking directly to the question, but I think that there are athletes who have to exist on these two poles all of the time, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, we see it when LeBron James, despite being LeBron fucking James, is, I'm sorry for cursing, uh, <laughs> is still told to like not speak up about issues mm -hmm. and just play basketball. Like it, it, fathom being someone and telling someone that, you know what I mean? Like in what world is that? When, when, when Tom Brady puts a, a Donald Trump hat in his locker, no one is like, these people, the same people who are telling LeBron James to shut up and dribble aren't telling Tom Brady, take that hat out of your locker and throw the ball, right? And so what are we actually talking about then? This isn't about dribbling a basketball. Well, and maybe, Samuel, you can address this. Um, we talked a little bit the other day about how, you know, coaches kind of have to keep a, a locker room together. And so on one hand, you, you know, you'd like to think everyone can be an individual and speak their mind, but you know, practically, you, you can't have everyone speaking their you know, just doing whatever they want to if you're gonna have a cohesive team. Um, so maybe um, speak to how that sometimes can create tension for an individual athlete. Well, I, I think with the previous comments, what you see are part of the, the really fascinating good parts of sport, that is, allows for uh, all kinds of diversity to be expressed. Um, on the other hand, there is, imagine being a coach of a team and 
some of your players would like to protest and other players would rather not protest. Some players would like to kneel during the playing of the national anthem. Others would like to stand during the playing. Some would like to stay in the locker room, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine being a coach trying to deal with that situation while at the same time, with, and if you're a professional, you're a coach of a professional team, you're ultimately, it's about winning. So trying to keep cohesion, unity, all the kinds of things, family, all the words that coaches use, uh, and trying to keep all that together. So Mike Tomlin, Pittsburgh Steelers coach, is one of my favorite coaches, but I felt as if he mishandled a situation in this past year where um, all, of the, all of the players, with one exception, stayed in the locker room during the playing of the national anthem, and one player came out and stood. Well, to me, that's problematic. So you need to be, in my opinion, uh, united on what it is we're going to do as a collective team and not, um, and I'm not suggesting you all should stay in the locker or kneel or whatever. Um, and another piece of that is how what Colin Kaepernick attempted to do, the whole conversation got shifted from what he was focusing on to something totally different and mislabeled. Oftentimes you would hear sport commentators or talking figures say they're protesting the playing of the national anthem or they're protesting the flag and nothing could be farther from the truth. The protest was about uh, police brutality and killing of black men by police officers. Well, somehow that whole focus that Colin Kaepernick was trying to get attention to went away to, well, you're being disrespectful to the flag, which is kind of ironic as a former uh, military person myself. You, you know, when you are serving, you are about the rights, all of the rights. And one of the rights that you're defending is the right to protest. And so I think you have the right to do that, and that should be honored as much as the right not to protest or to, to stand during the national anthem. So I don't know if I got too far away from this. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe to switch gears a little bit, and um, Hanif, one of my favorite pieces in, in your book was about the NBA All-Star Game, and it was like one of the pieces where I was like, yeah, um, where you talk about how, you know, maybe white fans look at the NBA All-Star Game and say nobody's playing defense and there's no structure and, and you completely turned it around and, and you know talked about it as like a celebration of you know being able to kind of re return to the roots of why a lot of these players fell in love with playing basketball and how beautiful it is. And, um, and I guess that kind of gets back to my point of how you know sports can bring us together but also maybe reveal some of the differences in audiences and publics. Yeah, and I, I mean... I don't remember the, I mean, I know that piece, but I don't remember, did I say white fans explicitly? Maybe I did. You maybe didn't, I was reading I, that into that. I mean, I think I was probably <laughs> thinking it to be, like, if I'm just being 100 real. I said it for you. There you um, go. But I also think it's, like, older fans, too, mm -hmm. right? Like, I imagine, like, fans my father's age are also, like, I'm not watching the NBA All-Star game because it's not about fundamentals, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, who the hell cares? It's an all-star game. And, and I know that in some sports, the all-star game, like I know in baseball, the all-star game means something. Mm -hmm. So, fine. But in the NBA, it means literally nothing. And what I like about the all-star game, did anyone watch the all-star game this year? So what I like about the all-star game is there is a moment in every all-star game where it does start to matter to the players. So the all-star game this year was like close until, it was close all the way through. Um, but maybe like three minutes in, I think LeBron and Westbrook very much decided they wanted to win. Right, and then Steph Curry very much decided he wanted to win, and then it became a game. Right, mm -hmm. but before that, you're seeing a lot of why these players learn to love the game. I grew up playing street ball. At so many kids I know, the best basketball players I know grew up playing street ball first because that's what they had access to, and that's mm -hmm. where you learn stuff that you eventually cannot do in structured games. Right, and so it is an, again, if I'm talking about freedom, right, it's a type of freedom to have a, an entire landscape where you can just fuck around for however long you want to until you decide you want to win. And then you can play for the audience. But the All-Star Game, the NBA All-Star Game in specific, is the one place where the, you see the players truly playing for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that, we could talk all we want about like, 
players playing for a love of the game and all this stuff. But when you're when you're playing in the structure of a team for a coach for the NBA and all that, you're playing for a lot of things that aren't yourself. And the All Star Game, um, yes, it's still under the umbrella of the NBA, but no one cares if you throw a pass that doesn't. You know, if you throw like a ridiculous no look pass that ends up in the stands. I, when Kyrie, like, I don't even remember the move Kyrie attempted in the All-Star game this year, but it was so absurd. Like, I remember watching it and being like, it doesn't even matter that he didn't pull that off. That's one of the craziest things I've ever seen anyone try. And I'm glad that he got to do it in front of all these people. Because if he did that in Boston, he would be on the bench for a week. Well, maybe not a week. They, they need him. Um, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like, there's an there's a untethering of this. this um, I think when I wrote that piece, that piece, like, ultimately was about Trayvon Martin's death. Um, Trayvon Martin's murder. Um, but I was thinking about freedom, right? I was thinking about this idea of I grew up loving sports and playing sports in unstructured and structured environments, and I know well what it is to run back to an unstructured environment after playing in a structured one for so long. It's why all the kids in my neighborhood, when high school basketball season ended, would go straight back to the streetball court and do all the stuff they wanted to do that they couldn't do on the courts where their high schools. It's a freedom that can't be explained. Mm-hmm. So, um, as a former coach, um, Sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> there are two events that's difficult and painful for me to watch. So the All-Star Game is a painful event <laughs> for, regardless of the sport, you know, basketball, football, whatever, uh, due to the lack of fundamentals. It's just painful. Uh, <laughs> another painful event for me, uh, myself and my wife, who actually is a faculty member at Capital University, uh, she's been there some 20 years, so I don't know how long you, when, when you were there. Yes, well, there are probably about five black folk at the Yeah, I'm sure, I was about to say, I didn't want to say it. I was about to say, like, <laughs> I'm sure we know each other because yes. I was one of, one of, like, six total when I was, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So. so she was a former um, collegiate student athlete. She was the captain of her, of her volleyball team at North Carolina State, uh, A&T State University. And so myself, I had success as an athlete also, where we have a 15-year-old daughter who loves to participate in in all kinds of sports, but she does not do it to be competitive. She does it to be social. So she's interested in the snacks after the game is over and socializing with her um, teammates. That's another painful event for me to watch her out on the court, not putting forth very much effort at all. So that's the reason it's hard for me to watch the All-Star Game. It's just it's a painful <laughs> kind of event. I was nodding with my partner because we have a nine-year-old who enjoys the snacks and socializing more than... <laughs> Yo, I, I too enjoy the snacks more, you know? Like, I, it broke my heart that when I got to college that that wasn't popping off the same way. Like, I got, like, we would get, like, $8 after the game to go to a drive-thru on the road game, and I was like, this isn't what it was when I was, you know, I missed the snacks. I might just add really briefly that I have such a different relationship to to pleasure and sport coming from long-distance running, um, which is so much about restraint, you know, and sort of the pleasure of restraint and the pleasure of discipline. Um, The folks who run the race hard from the start sort of burn out the quickest and end up in the back, right? So um, there's a certain amount of pleasure, at least where I come from in my world, in sort of in holding back and in kind of doling it out bit by bit by bit and outlasting everyone else. Um, and sort of ultimately, of course, as with every sport, spending everything, right, and feeling kind of the pleasure of coming into contact with your own body in that sense. Um, but, I, yeah, I watch other sports, you know, like like basketball, for instance, um, where there's such immediacy, or even sprinting within track and field, um, right, where like an entire race can be over in six seconds, and um, I wonder what that feels like, because my relationship to pleasure in sport is so far afield of of six seconds. Like 30 minutes would be a short race for me. I think think what I most love watching about basketball, and, or, 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 or sprinting, or, Parts of soccer, you know, I, it's weird. I, well, no, I still watch a lot of soccer, but it is the immediate moments, right? I think that, like, I'm sure you love all of the race, but I, whenever I'm watching distance running, I always tune in for the last part of the race, right? Because, but and it's not because I think the rest is boring, because I, I, I under, I know and understand the strategies behind it, but I think I most love the immediacy of sport, right? I most love 
the home stretch of anything. I think that's why so many people like watching a player like Russell Westbrook, because he only knows immediacy. His only function on the basketball court is whatever most immediate, which is also why he fails a lot, right? Um, and, and, or like when he fails, it's still really brilliant and beautiful. Um, well, I, I'm just a fan of him. I'm sure Oklahoma City fans are like, it's not brilliant and beautiful <laughs> because we might miss the playoffs. Um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting, I, that was like a beautiful image about doling it out bit by bit is what I was trying to say. Um, another thing that I was thinking about is how um, passionate the, the fan bases are for different sports to the point that sometimes they lose um, perspective to the point that maybe they're fighting for something that in all other ways and all other parts of their lives they wouldn't. And, and one thing I've been thinking of recently is the, um, the Cleveland Indians decision to finally do away with their um, chief Wahoo mascot. And um, I mean, the name is another issue, but um, at least like this visual symbol is kind of cartoon symbol of Native Americans is, is gone. Um, just kind of using that as a starting point, maybe talk about how um, people seem to lose perspective when it comes to sports and they'll do things or say things or um, just become irrational ways that only sports can seem to, to provoke those responses. I mean, I'm probably the last person to talk about this because, you know, as per my earlier statement, you, you know, the starting gun goes off, particularly in cross country, and people cheer, and then you don't see another human being for like three miles. <laughs> um, so, of course, you know, at UCLA in particular, cross country is financed by, you know, by football and basketball. So, um, sports that do have this kind of like really intense, um, I don't even think fan base is a strong enough word for it. Um, so I, I'm coming from sort of a separate world entirely, um, but I am, um, I do follow sports and I do go to games and I sort of find myself participating in this experience that I actually never knew as an athlete. Um, which of course I think has something, I was speaking earlier about embodiment and my interest in embodiment. And I think there is something about kind of projecting our bodies onto someone else's body in movement and in contact that is thrilling and dangerous. Um, but I, maybe I'll turn this over to the experts that um, aren't cross-country runners. I, I mean, I think that for me the answer, the simple answer is that it is easiest to rationalize that which gives us pleasure or that which makes us feel a part of something or that which makes us feel not so alone, right? Mm -hmm. um, I stopped last, uh, largely, I mean, I still watch a couple games, but largely I stopped watching football at the beginning of last season, not this past season, but the one before it. Um, after years of being a, a Bengals fan, like diehard Bengals fan, which maybe it's better that I stopped watching at this point. Um, maybe I'll pick it up again when Andy Dalton's gone. Um, there was just, uh, you know, out, even outside of all the political s stuff that was bubbling underneath football, I remember watching the opening night game two seasons ago it was like the Broncos Panthers. It was a big re Super Bowl rematch, and there was a point where Cam Newton got hit and was clearly concussed, like clearly had a concussion, right? And he got up, woozily went over to the sidelines, one play out, and came back in. Got hit again, was down for a prolonged amount of time, got dragged to the sidelines. Next series, he was back out again. I felt then that I, was com I, I live a life in where I'm complicit in several bad things all at once, right? Because kind of we all do. And I hit a point where I was like, I have to choose the things I'm complicit in. I have to like do away with one, and this is the one. Mm -hmm. But for so long, that was hard for me because I grew up in a house, I mean, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I, I grew up, my, my brother played football his whole life, and I watched him play football all through high school, and football was so important, and it made me, feel like I was a part of something. It gave me a touchstone to talk to a sibling or a father. And therefore, it is easy. So I, Cleveland fans do that same rationalization, right? Because of what that team means to them. It's the easiest to do. It's, 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 a, it's easy math to rationalize a thing when you love it and you are surrounded only by people who also love it as you love it. So okay, if, I, if I could uh, quickly. Uh, so if you're taking written or mental notes, Here's a name for you to, to uh, keep in mind. C, as in the letter C, C. Richard King. 
Uh, he's an author who writes about specifically the use of Native American images and mascots and logos and so forth and so on, specifically the Cleveland um, the professional baseball team in Cleveland and the use of the mascot and, and Chief Oahu. And so we, in, in my classes, we speak about two, mainly two teams. One is the Cleveland uh, team, and then, of course, it's hard not to speak about Washington football team and the use of the uh, derogatory term that they use uh, to labor, label their uh, football team. So we speak to those things, and being in Ohio, uh, oftentimes I will see students show up, particularly when we speak to these issues with, you know, the Cleveland jersey on as I guess kind of a silent protest back to me for the conversations that we have in class. And sometimes even you will have a student walk out of class, which tells me that I'm doing my job because if I'm not causing you to think about things, even if to the point where you get frustrated and leave, then I'm not doing my job. Now, the good part is as a student, I know you're coming back since I'm assigned a grade to you at some point in time. So you're going to come back as opposed to an audience like this where you walk out and you may be gone forever. But I, I do think, uh, and so there are two main arguments, I will close with this, there are two main arguments about uh, the use of Native Americans for an example. One is, is tradition, and when I tell my students is you can do something wrong for a very long time. So tradition in and of itself is not a really good argument, it's tradition, so therefore we do it. Well, you know, we, you can do something wrong for a very long time. And the other one is, is honoring the group. Well, if you look at actual images, you can you can see that it's not very honoring. For me, it comes down to power and privilege and and economics. And Native Americans represent such a small percentage of our population. We just basically ignore. Them. I mean, you know, we, it, it, certainly if a car maker came out. So we have Jeep Cherokee, for an example. If a car maker came out with the Caucasian Chevrolet, there would be protests or the Negro Neon, there will be protests. But no one speaks about things that we just simply take for granted, like the Jeep Cherokee. Um, along those lines, one thing that I find interesting, and maybe you can all speak to this, when you go into Ohio Stadium, for example, and I've brought friends to games with me, there are some friends and some people that are so turned off by what they see as you know, this militaristic, almost nationalistic, um, you know, kind of display of togetherness. And that's what they see, and they're, and obviously I think we can all recognize that that goes on to some extent. But what is it about people who like sports that can maybe look past that to a certain degree? And what you were kind of saying, Hanif, earlier, you know, like, you feel like you're a part of something, you feel like you're kind of belonging to something bigger. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is, um, you know, I think the people that I know that like sports certainly recognize the, what's the problems in sports, but what, what is it that, for the people that do like sports, that um, allows you to overlook some of that stuff? So there's a quote that says that when adults get involved, sports are corrupted. As long as young people are doing sports, they tend not to be as corrupted. But when adults get involved, that's when you see corruption set in. And so they become increasingly structured and formalized. And that's where you begin to see problems because it's about control and power and so forth and so on that we talked about. Let me give you an example. Um, there were, during the midst of this, this, for, this uh, prior season with regard to the National Football League, there was, a, there was a game that was held in Dallas, Dallas uh, Cowboy football team. And, prior, and so there was this conversation, and the President Trump had made comments and called – uh, the players, SOBs, and some of you are familiar with that whole saga that took place. And then the following weekend, uh, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, and all the players were on one knee prior to the playing of the national anthem. They were, they were embraced, locked arms. And so most of us, including myself, I thought, well, that's, that's really nice. That's a good sign and symbol. What came out later was that uh, owner Jones had had a conversation with Donald Trump prior to that happening. And they figured out how can we actually have a protest but at the same time not actually protest. 
And so the politics of what I'm saying is there are politics behind the visual politics of what they were doing. There were politics behind that as well. I would sort of answer that, that question in a couple ways. The first is maybe the most obvious by saying that sports is a kind of theater. I mean, we've talked about pleasure, but of course, um, it's, it's a sort of entertainment at its, you know, at its, in some cases, at its most sophisticated. Um, and also, we've talked about, I think, the way in which uh, sports offers us a lens through which to see culture in every facet, right? Um, sort of in terms of race, class, and gender, which we haven't really talked about at all on stage so far. Um, so it, it sort of, it offers sort of, if we can see that as a spectrum, right, from the sort of uh, the critical sort of intellectual through pure entertainment, I mean, it's all there. Um, I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment that is, um, that sort of understands not only my personal lived experience, you know, as, as a woman, as a performer, et cetera, but um, as a person in society through looking at sports, you know, through looking at Allen Iverson, through looking at Susie Favor Hamilton, um, and sort of on and on. So for me, uh, it's everything. It holds everything in a way that I, I can't think of anything else that behaves that way, you know, as is evidenced too by, you know, in, you incite folks and, and like this long list of, of essays and contributions um, that sort of come from every corner of intellectual and creative pursuit. So for me, um, yeah, I'm shocked. I'm shocked when anyone doesn't feel that way about sports, although I will say that um, I'm from Philadelphia where, you know, there's a lot of violence around sports. I wasn't allowed to go to Eagles games growing up um, because my parents, you know, thought that too many people were getting jumped and beat up. So, you know, there is a certain kind of fear and, and violence and trauma that attends sports that overshadows it. I did, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that gender was mentioned. I do, I was, I do want to say that I think um, it bears mentioning that some of the earliest, most vocal protests happened in the WNBA and with the women's U.S. Mm -hmm. soccer team. Yep. Megan Rapino specifically, I thought was like um, really. In a, I think with Rapino, it was like unfortunate how the U.S. soccer reacted to that, but it was kind of like setting a tone for for what was happening elsewhere. Um. Let's talk about gender for a second. Um, well, I just want you to talk a little bit about um, what kind of caught my eye and why I thought you'd be great on the panel was I saw that you gave the paper on Alan Iverson and Susie Favor Hamilton, not a paper, but a presentation. And um, I'm sure a lot of you don't know who Susie Favor Hamilton is, but um, when I was in grad school at Wisconsin, she was um, a, a track, yeah. Um, and, I mean, she was it. I mean, she was, you know, this attractive, like, super accomplished, you know, she was, like, the, the darling of Madison, Wisconsin, and things have come up in her personal life. Like, I just find her, her story absolutely fascinating. Well, maybe you should fill in. Yeah, well, for those <laughs> not, of you who don't me. know, um, she recently came out with a book called Fast Girls, or Trashy a trashy read if you're like in the airport or something, but fascinating in its own way. Um, after, as Dave says, she uh, was sort of this like um, cookie, kind of cookie cutter Wisconsin girl, three-time Olympian, um, bronze medalist in the 1500 meters. She became a sex worker um, in, in Las Vegas and um, chronicled her experience in, in her 40s and in, in fact into her early 50s and chronicled that experience in this book after she was outed by um, the website Smoking Gun. So um, yes, as, as Dave mentioned, I, I recently gave a presentation at CAA about these two athletes in particular and um, I hope it's not a little too abstruse to talk about here, but uh, the presentation was about the relationship between practice and gender, and how practice is, um, well, let me back up and say, maybe some of you are familiar with the very famous Allen Iverson rant. <laughs> uh, we're not talking about practice, we're talking about, we're not talking about the game, we're talking about practice, 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 where he talks about, he uses the word practice, I think, some 22, 23 times over the course of four minutes, um, and he's really sort of vehemently objecting to the idea that practice should matter at all. If you haven't seen that clip, 
do yourself a favor and go watch it on YouTube. I think it has like 20 million views. Um, and I was really, I kept returning to that clip and thinking, what is holding me about this other than the fact that it's sort of absurd and, and performative? Um, and I, I sort of came to this idea that um, practice itself is perhaps, gen perhaps gendered in a way that we don't normally think about it, which is to say um, that performance, its dialectical opposite, is all about the explosiveness, the immediacy as we're talking about, the performance, the recognition, the validation. It's in no way about the failure that we encounter in practice. And if anyone here is in athletics, you'll sort of be familiar with um, with this idea of failure, right? That is what practice is, is sort of um, uh, kind of deliberately teasing out uh, the sort of the problems, right? And deliberately sort of failing over and over and over so that you don't need to do that in performance. Um, so the argument that I was making in that presentation um, is that that is actually, um, we might actually understand that as a feminized way of being, um, that um, the sort of the willingness to fail and um, the uh, the need not to be necessarily recognized in public that that these in fact have attributes that are rooted in in um, you know feminine behavior. Um, so I I uh, I also brought this is where sort of Susie Favor Hamilton comes in. Um, much of her book is, in fact, an account of failure after failure after failure after failure, and how sort of readily she is able to um, kind of admit to and fetishize that failure in relationship to her athletic life, as opposed to someone like Allen Iverson, who um, scoffs at the idea, who is sort of openly and outwardly offended by it. I hope that that I hope that that makes some sense. Exactly. Um, I mean, this is to say nothing, of course, of how. We don't have female professional athletes for the most part, and that's just widely accepted and, and totally unquestioned. Um, I just read some news that um, the WNBA um, team that plays in Madison Square Garden has been downgraded. They're now gonna be playing in, uh, I think, a, like a small court in, in New Jersey just over the bridge. So, I mean, we don't even like, that's nothing. That doesn't make front page news, you know? Um, so I think that that sort of, maybe a slightly less, um, I don't know, kind of like academic approach to that question, um, which, is, which is so, uh, so sort of blaringly obvious that I think we don't even think about it or talk about it, right? Yeah, not at all. I lived in Connecticut for two and a half years. Connecticut has a WNBA team, right? But no one there even knows that they have a WNBA team, in part because if there is one place where women's basketball is iconic, it is in stores Connecticut. And so UConn's women's basketball team is the professional sports team in Connecticut. Much like some would say Ohio State football is the professional sports team in Columbus. Through the entire state, Connecticut has no professional sports teams other than the Connecticut Sun. Um, and no one knows that they play there. No one goes to their games. They do play, they play in a casino. They play in the Mohegan Sun Casino. It's very weird. I went to one game and it was a very <laughs> odd experience because you walk outside, you know, you're there with like 200 people um, who are like during halftime going to play the slots. It's a very weird, like it's a, <laughs> like a wild experience. You know what I mean? Like I know it's like, it's funny but not, you know what I mean? Um, but you go to a, UK, you can't get tickets to UConn's women's basketball games. Like I, I lived there two and a half years. I got tickets once and I had to pay like hundreds of dollars. Yeah, can I just add in here? This is something that's so, um, there's just strange distinction between collegiate sports and professional sports because in college, um, for the most part, uh, save football teams, there's women's teams and men's teams. So there's more or less the same amount of female athletes and male athletes. Um, so I knew a lot of athletes who went on from UCLA to become professionals and they were all men. So there were some exceptional female athletes and they had nowhere to go. Um, or some of them went to Europe, you know, even if that wasn't the most desired kind of outcome for them. Um, and yeah, that conversation does, doesn't exist because it's such a given, but it was bizarre to see sort of the paths diverge, you know, once we exited college. So here's an academic uh, response to that statement, which obviously is an uh, important statement. And back to this notion of context and where we were and where we are today, we think about Title IX in 1970s, and we see what we see is 
a consistent ascending trend of girls and women participating in sports. So part of it is because colleges and universities are required to have spaces for women to participate, whereas the professional level, that's not so much the case. But what we also see with this, so, so the dichotomy here is we see this, or paradox is we see this ascending trend of girls and women participating in sports. At the same time, in 1970, Title IX, back to Title IX again, 90% of women's sports were coached by women. We see this consistent downward slope for women coaching women's sports. So now more men actually coach women's sports than women coach women's sports. And so that's, and I understand that's an academic statement, but so that's troubling uh, to see that when we talk about gender and how uh, opportunities have opened up for more girls and women to participate, but at the same time, more men are getting involved in taking those places and spaces that women perhaps otherwise would have to coach uh, women's sports. Mm -hmm. And it goes without saying women are not coaching, by and large, men's sports. It's just not happening. Okay, well, I should add that um, Hanif is going to be um, hanging around the bookstore. If anyone would like a copy of his book, it's oh, there, yeah, it and you. he'd be happy to sign it. And we have copies of the Insight Journal there, and Brett and Astrid are going to be hanging around. Um, please join me in thanking our terrific panel. Thank you.